the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Again, follow us, danproftshow.com is the site. All our podcasts are posted there, as well as you can get them at uh, iTunes, Spotify, at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show are two Twitter handles. Same thing, Dan Proft Show for Facebook. Uh, and, uh, I, you know, I'll tell you what, I'm, I'm sticking with the prediction I've made since the beginning of Caesar Mike. That's a Bloomberg's campaign, which is not enough money in the world to sell Bloomberg's manure smelling air freshener. Not enough money in the world. Yes, he's uh, bumped up in the national polls enough to make the debate stage tonight in Nevada. And uh, yes, there are people giving him serious consideration in the wake of Joe Biden's slide to uh, elimination. But right now, Bloomy has a television audience and Bolshevik Bernie has a constituency. Can Caesar Mike translate his television audience into an actual constituency, a political constituency, the sort of political constituency you need to actually win primaries and caucuses and pile up delegates? And can he do so fast enough to blunt the momentum that Bolshevik Bernie has, momentum that could increase in pace yet again if Elizabeth Warren is unable to continue uh, much past Nevada and South Carolina, maybe not even make it to Super Tuesday. We'll see. And with each passing day, (laughs) you get uh, another walk down uh, not-too-distant memory lane with Bloomberg and pronouncements that are going to be taken very negatively by wide swaths of the Democrat primary electorate. Farmers and women and uh, young black and Latino men, the things he said about them. And uh, now the LGBTQ community. This is just a year ago in March of 2019. Bloomberg at the Bermuda Business Development Agency in Manhattan, where he was uh, sort of previewing the 2020 election and talking about uh, the extreme positions that uh, Democrats are taking on social issues like trans rights issues, like dudes in your daughter's bathroom. And Bloomberg said this. They didn't listen to us. If you go to the middle of the country, people would say, um, if your conversation during a presidential election is about some guy wearing a dress and whether he, she or it can go to and, and go to the locker room with their daughter, that's not a winning formula. for He, she or it. It, you know, even when uh, Bloomberg is uh, trying to be commonsensical uh, rather than the 
uh, rabid cultural Marxists that uh, surround him in this Democrat socialist primary. And by the way, which he really is one. Um, but he, I think, understands pace a little bit better than some of his more committed ideological brothers and sisters in the Democrat race. But even when he tries to be that person, I mean, he is so dismissive and insulting and condescending. It's uh, hard to see how he attracts much in the way of political support by the way he talks about these issues, isn't it? And I'll tell you, uh, I, I made mention of this the other day when we were talking about his comments about farmers, you know, not having the gray matter to be coders, essentially. And same thing with uh, the previous generations of factory workers who operated uh, manual lathes and now have to operate digital lathes, gray matter. Uh, and with respect to farmers, you immediately think Paul Harvey and, and God created a farmer. And uh, so I mentioned that, but I'll tell you what, Sean Davis at the com, he fully consummated the opportunity that Bloomberg provided. And on the eighth day, God looked down on his plan paradise and said, I need a tiny soulless technocrat to tell everyone how to live their lives. So God made a Bloomberg. God said, I need a know-it-all Wall Street banker who made more money by getting fired than most men will make their entire lives working an honest job. So God made a Bloomberg. I need somebody who uh, I need somebody with hands strong enough to carry a stool and a booster seat wherever he goes, but gentle enough to sign the voter registration papers as a Democrat and then a Republican and then an independent and then a Democrat again. Someone who would uh, tell the fle- uh, a female employee to kill her own baby so she could work longer hours, a grieving family that it's a waste to give medical care to old people, or a farmer that growing food is easy and any idiot with half a brain could manage it. Someone who could tell a mother that parenting was as simple as hiring some, quote, some black who doesn't even have to speak English, unquote, to raise her dumb kid. Jeez. So God made a Bloomberg. I need somebody willing to tell those awful poors that they need to be disproportionately taxed for their own good because they're too stupid to know what's good for them. Somebody will ban the sale of 32-ounce fountain drinks, but not the sale of two 16-ounce sodas because everyone knows sugary syrup from a single cup is way worse for you than sugary syrup from two smaller cups. Plus, it's it's not like fatty Boombalati over there has the self-control to put down the big gulp himself. So God made a Bloomberg. Oh, I'll close. God said, I need somebody with no charm, no charisma, and no compelling reason to ever serve in government to nonetheless buy his way into the ballot, then buy his way into the mayor's office, then buy off the city council to eliminate the two-term limit on mayoral service. Then I need him to spend nine figures buying his way into the Democrat primary because there would be nothing more hilarious than watching a broken-down old socialist get robbed again by yet another New York crony who is the life-size poster child for everything that's wrong with modern capitalism. So God made a Bloomberg. I mean... Woo! That's good stuff. That is good stuff. And the funny thing, you know, Sean Davis is a conservative. And uh, we're looking at uh, Bloomberg retrospectively so much. But I'll tell you what, his uh, satirical piece, which is most excellent, as you gathered, I'm sure, is not very different from the great writer Christopher Hitchens. Not a conservative, libertarian-ish of sorts. Christopher Hitchens, uh, dearly departed, wrote this piece about New York under Bloomberg in 2004, 16 years ago, a piece called I Fought the Law. Listen to how he describes Bloomberg. 
in fact, the law these days is very clear. It states that New York City is now the domain of the mediocre bureaucrat, of the inspector with too much time on his hands, of the anal retentive cop with his nose in a rule book, of the snitch willing to drop a dime on a harmless fellow citizen, and of a mayor who is the most who is that most pathetic and annoying figure, the micromegalomaniac. He uh, talks about, uh, you know, all those things under uh, Mayor Bloomberg during his tenure to get people to behave. The micromegalomaniac. Managing the minutia of your life, regulating your every movement. Listen to this. Very uh, similar to the uh, Harvey uh, Silverglade book, Three Felonies a Day. That's what New York has become. The idea you can't help but commit three felonies a day because the law is so tedious and idiosyncratic and unknowable. Thus, you no longer have the rule of law. In New York, in the New York of Mayor Bloomberg, Hitchens wrote, there are laws that are not possible to obey and nobody can respect and that are enforced by arbitrary power. The essence of of tyranny is not iron law. It's capricious law. Tyranny can be petty and petty is not just Bloomberg's middle name. It is his name. And he's exactly right in his description of tyranny. Listen to his description of life in New York under Bloomberg. In the space of a few hours in late November, I managed to break a whole slew of New York laws. That is to say, I sat on an upended milk crate, put my bag next to me on a subway seat, paused to adjust my shoe on a subway step, fed some birds in Central Park, had a cigarette in a town car, attempted to put a plastic frame around a vehicle license plate, and rode a bicycle without keeping my feet on the pedals at all times. I also had a smoke in a bar and at a table in a restaurant. Only in the latter two cases would I hitherto have been knowingly violating a city ordinance. All of those things I just read off were violations of New York City ordinances, and it's only smoking in a bar and a table knowing the smoking ban is what effect that Hitchens recognized while doing it uh, were violations of city ordinances. Really good piece by Hitchens, too. I'll tweet out both of them, Sean Davis and Hitchens. And uh, when we come back, pick up our discussion of Bloomberg. And this is the important piece, the idea that um, uh, everybody is going to fold fold in regardless of uh, who the Democrat nominee is. Vote blue no matter who. Uh, Bloomberg may be the candidate least likely to enjoy that sort of unification were he to somehow buy his way to the nomination. And perhaps this is why Trump and Trump's pollster, Tony Fabrizio, have both said rather face Bloomberg and his billions than Bernie Sanders and his millions. Back with more after this. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show we were talking about the caesar mike and this notion of the party unifying behind whoever is the ultimate uh, victor democrat party regardless of whether that uh, takes place because uh, somebody gets to a majority of the available delegates or some sort of bitter broker convention. Now, you know, these one-off op-eds are not necessarily dispositive of uh, 
uh, a question about unity. But they do give an indicator. And recalling from a couple of weeks ago, the Bernie Sanders supporters, the least likely to support the Democrat nominee, whoever it is, they're least likely to abide the philosophy, vote blue, no matter who. Uh, Just over half of Bernie Sanders supporters said they would. And remember, this is in large measure a turnout game. It's not saying that these socialists and gulag lovers will come over to President Trump's side, but it is saying they may stay home. And so the uh, lesser of two evils argument doesn't have much appeal to Ryan Cooper writing in The Week, theweek.com. Michael Bloomberg is not the lesser of two evils. This is a Bernie Sanders supporter, Ryan Cooper. I think Bernie Sanders is the best candidate, but given the abominable Trump presidency, I've also said I'll vote for whoever wins the Democrat nomination. However, that was before Michael Bloomberg became a serious presidential contender. I've given it very serious thought. And while I would happily vote for Warren, grudgingly vote for Biden or Klobuchar or secure an entire bottle of Southern Comfort to get sufficiently hammered to vote for Pete Buttigieg. Wow. I will not vote for Bloomberg in November if he's nominated. Will not. He cites a writer at the New Republic agreeing that Bloomberg is a right wing authoritarian with nakedly racist views who constantly violated civil rights during his time as mayor of New York City. Remember, you don't have to agree with the analysis, but the perspective is illuminating. Also this, this has been uh, largely overlooked, but it's a good point that he makes here. Bloomberg's newfound commitment to progressive policies is so transparently fraudulent that his campaign apparently plagiarized huge chunks of his campaign platform. He's just trying to trick the Democrat electorate with a tidal wave of cash and is doing is you know, seeing some success from that. It's really a good point. An underappreciated story. You know, uh, Bloomberg uh, saw Joe Biden's uh, Neil Kinnock plagiarism from uh, 30 years ago and uh, and raised him by cutting and pasting from all sorts of uh, policy advocacy groups to uh, stitch together his uh, platform for his campaign website. That That is true. Uh, it's interesting how underreported that story is, but I and I agree that it's a fair takeaway to say perhaps this isn't somebody who is authentically on board with all of our big government gambits from uh, deindustrializing the economy to the formal immediate government takeover of health care and the elimination of private health insurance. Perhaps he may slow walk that, as I said, from his notable and quotable employee gift from 30 years ago, the most damning statement. That Bloomberg uh, is alleged to have made memorialized in that booklet is, I believe, in capitalism and the free enterprise system. That is verboten (laughs) in that primary, at least among the majority. He uh, goes on, does Ryan Cooper. Bloomberg is a committed and pitiless warmonger supporting the war in Iraq. He repeated the Bush administration's lie that Saddam Hussein had plotted 9-11. He opposed President Obama's Iran deal, had few complaints about Trump's assassination of Iran's Qasem Soleimani. At bottom, Bloomberg is basically just like George W. Bush with a dollop of maddening nanny state condescension. It's more than a dollop, as Christopher Hitchens uh, (laughs) detailed in his piece from uh, 16 years ago we just talked about in the last segment. Cooper goes on, without question, he would be one of the top five worst major party presidential nominees in the last century of American history. Among Bernie Sanders supporters, writes Cooper, I am far from the most diehard. I simply cannot countenance putting my name down for Bloomberg in November. There are millions more who would do the same, plus no small number of supporters of the other candidates in all likelihood. 
Then there is the general fact that Bloomberg's extreme wealth and extensive record of racism and sexual harassment would negate most of the strongest attacks against Trump. Bloomberg would be highly likely to bleed enough support to third parties or to lose to Trump, just as Hillary Clinton did. Uh, and uh, calls on you know his fellow Democrat primary voters to vote against Bloomberg. Well, more coming at <laughs> Bloomberg. More grist for the mill for the uh, anti-globalists of the Marxist variety, which is uh, such a contradiction. I don't have time to go into it here, but at some point it turns out that, uh, you know, Bloomberg has a lot of LeBron James and Hollywood in him when it comes to China. A good write up at AmericanThinker.com by Steve McCann recounts more instant classics from Bloomberg's past, not distant last fall, September 2019 on firing line. Bloomberg told Margaret Hoover, the Communist Party of China wants to stay in power in China, and they listen to the public. Xi Jinping is not a dictator. He has to satisfy his constituents or he's not going to survive. Boy, did that uh, comment not hold up very well in the wake of coronavirus and concentration camps of Uyghur Muslims and repression of Hong Kong democracy protesters. And that's just in September. Bloomberg failed to mention, writes McCann, that in 2013, Bloomberg News was caught in a scandal when it killed news stories revealing corruption related to President Xi's family members, prompting various reporters and editors to resign. It turned out that Bloomberg News' leadership told the editors that stories about the families of Politburo members were off-limits. Nice, propagandizing for the Chinese communists before it was uh, popular with the uh, huge tech platforms like Google and Twitter. Bloomberg doubled down when challenged by Hoover in that PBS interview from the fall. The Chinese Communist Party looks at Russia and they look for where the Communist Party is and they don't find it anymore. And they don't want that to happen. So they're really responsive to the will of the people, Bloomberg argued. Oh, man. And then you get into it. Uh, It turns out, as Josh Rogan, The Washington Post reported, uh, Bloomberg and his company, Bloomberg LP, make a considerable amount of money in China, not only through the profitable licensing of Bloomberg's financial software, but via its massive Bloomberg Barclays Global Aggregate Bond Index. Bloomberg LP is helping finance Chinese companies by sending billions of U.S. investor dollars into the Chinese bond market. In 2019, the Bloomberg Index began a 20-month plan to support 364 Chinese firms by directing an estimated $150 billion of investors' money into their bond offerings, including 159 of those companies controlled directly by the Chinese communists that are so responsive to their people, Bloomberg argues. So think about that in a general election. Uh, Trump taking a hard line on the Chinese communists to at least attempt to reduce their intellectual piracy and uh, and operate in a more, he would argue, fair manner when it comes to uh, trade. And Bloomberg, uh, you know, sort of uh, Hunter Biden-esque, but I mean, exponentially uh, funneling U.S. investor money into these Chinese state-owned companies while his news agency has a fairly long track record, we find out, of running interference for and propagandizing on behalf of President Xi and the Chinese Politburo. Wow. How's that going to sit with Ryan Cooper and those Bernie supporters? 
How's that going to sit with the Socialist Spice Girls, the so-called squad, and so many other rank-and-file Democrat primary voters? You think this gets, guy gets out of a primary? I think much to President Trump's chagrin, he won't. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich was all smiles walking through the Denver airport yesterday after learning that President Trump had commuted the rest of his 14-year prison sentence, uh, making his way back to Chicago. And uh, WGN reporter Julie Unruh uh, missed him terribly, it sounded like. Uh, They had a chat while he was walking to his gate. I want to express my most profound and everlasting gratitude to President Trump. He didn't have to do this. He's a Republican president. I was a Democratic governor. My fellow Democrats have not been very kind to him. They've been, in fact, they've been very unkind to him. And what he did was, I think, uh, something that deserves a great amount of appreciation on my part personally. And he has, from me, my deepest, most profound and everlasting gratitude. And I can't wait to get home. I miss my daughters. I miss my wife. I miss home. He's got, a, obviously, a big fan in me. And if you're asking me what my party affiliation is, I'm a Trumpocrat. It's a broken criminal justice system, and it's an unfair criminal justice system. It's a, it's a criminal justice system with too many people who have too much power, who don't have any accountability, and they could railroad people and put innocent people in prison, and they are, generally speaking, uh, virtually always prone to over-sentence people. It's a criminal justice system that's not only broken, but it's also racist. And I saw how it affects people of color and how on cases with nonviolent first offender drug offenders that they're made to do decades of prison time for things, for mistakes that they made and wrongs they committed that any fair-minded society would not allow. And so I'll I'll have more to say later. You said things happened for a reason. Do you believe this happened for a reason? Yes, I do. How so? I I just believe that uh, sometimes... Out of evil, you can good things can happen, and I think that the wickedness and evil that was done to me and to my family can be turned to good. Well, no, evil was done to me and my family. I mean, there was only two years ago, Wall Street Journal op-ed. I'm in prison for practicing politics, so at least we didn't have to suffer the non-apology apology from the political hack, which we're so used to in this city. He protests his innocence. I don't agree with him, but that's the position he's taken from the outset and continues to take. I just wonder. I mean, very concerned about the the inmates in his Shakespeare class. I just want to make sure they get credit for this semester because I know they hadn't gotten to the sonnets yet. So I just I want to make sure for more on Rod's release. We're pleased to be joined again by Rob Blagojevich, Rod's brother and author of the book Fundraiser A, My Fight for Freedom and Justice. Rob, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, we appreciate it. I I know we've talked about this before, but it recedes into people's memory. Uh, You were indicted with your brother initially, hung jury. He was retried. Federal government decided not to attempt to retry you. I think a lot of people had, including in a media that is not as sympathetic to your brother, include me, very sympathetic to you and do believe that you were uh, used as a way to try and leverage your brother in a way that was illegitimate. You should have never been prosecuted. It's one thing to pressure. It's another thing to actually go forward and indict and inflict the kind of cost that was imposed on you. 
by uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office. I always thought that was wrong. But I think your brother deserved to go to prison. And then we get into the business of what the duration of his sentence should have been. Where are you on that? It w- was Rod innocent and in prison for p- practicing politics, or is this a matter of arguing about an appropriate sentence? Well, I would say that your observations are insightful about what happened with me. And I would say that the government has, as we all know, unlimited power, and they use it only as severely or generously as the individual agendas of those U.S. attorneys, in this case, Patrick Fitzgerald. So they were merciless and, to me, did not represent the best of this country by going after me and wanting me to plea deal to do something against my brother. And then, as you mentioned, they dropped the charges after Rod and I were on trial. The reason they dropped the charges is because I was an effective witness for myself and my brother. The jury came back hung and the day of the hearing to set the date for the next trial, my lawyer gets a call from the lead prosecutor saying that, look, we want to cut a deal with your client. We won't try him with his brother again. We'll consider something for him, but he's got to wait until after his brother has been tried again. And we said no to that. And the next day they dropped their charges on me. So they play chicken with people's lives. And as Rod said in that clip, and he's right about this, there's no accountability back to these people. These are government righteous driven people who have no accountability. And that's a real problem. So I would say this: I'm very grateful to President Trump for what he's done for Rod and his family. Rod definitely has a lot of work to do to get back with his girls and make up for eight years. We're speaking with Rob Blagojevich, brother of Rod Blagojevich. When we come back, I want to ask you, Rob, if uh, your brother former governor, has accepted responsibility for the decisions he made as governor, including who he chose to allow in his inner circle. More with Rob with the B, Blagojevich, when we return. Fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Rob Blagojevich, brother of former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich whose sentence was commuted by President Trump. And I want to turn to the topic of accountability. Do you think that whether you want to characterize what he did during his tenure as criminal or just errors in judgment, do you think he is self-accountable for the decisions that he made as governor? He's accountable for his actions. There's no question about that. And I would say that anytime the government, as they did with us, wiretap you for 50 days and compile hours and hours of of undisciplined conversations like we all have all the time, they can make a federal case out of it, which is what they did with Rod. I'm not going to comment on his guilt or innocence. He's paid a big price. So in my view, it's over. He needs to go rebuild his life. But the lessons that I know he learned, and I know I learned, and I thank you for mentioning my book, because I wrote about that. Mm -hmm. It's a first-person 
sitting in a in this courtroom the size of a basketball court, overwhelmed by the resources of the federal government in a David and Goliath battle that you only have a four percent chance of walking away with your freedom. I got lucky. I had the resources, I was innocent, and oftentimes that's not enough. And so with regard to my brother, guilty or innocent, he's paid a big price. Whether he admits anything or not, you know, obviously that's his choice. He's gonna to have to reflect on that and live with it. But he needs to get on with his life and rebuild his family life, most importantly. Is there anybody in this saga that wasn't held accountable other than, in your opinion, the federal prosecutors? But I'm talking about in terms of politicians or political operatives. Anybody that wasn't held accountable that should have been by law enforcement? Man, that's a wide open question. And the first name sure that is. comes to my mind is a name that you may or may not remember, John Wyma, who yeah. worked for Rod for many years. He was with Chuck Schumer when Schumer was in Congress, came over to work with Rod when Rod was in Congress. He was being followed and was going to be charged by Patrick Fitzgerald, the U.S. attorney, for things that he was doing on the side that were allegedly illegal. And so he copped a plea and he pled against his friend to get off and to take care of himself, which is what the system is built to do. As Alan Dershowitz has said, the government gets people to compose, which means they get them to say things that sound right and twist the facts to get an outcome that they seek. And so Wyma was very expedient, took care of himself, didn't care about anyone else, and he, he's been a free man. Well, you mentioned uh, J.B. Pritzker. What about some of the others that were involved in the discussions about the Senate seat, the Rahm Emanuel's of the world and anybody potentially from the Obama White House. A lot of interest in the 302s, the FBI fact sheets with respect to some of these other well-known names in Chicago politics that seem to have skated on everything related to Rod Blagojevich. For sure, uh, Rahm Emanuel, the tiered justice system. I mean, the guy is a protected elite who has friends in the DOJ, of course, a connection with the Clintons. There's no way a guy like that is going to be blemished or put in harm's way. I remember reading his 302, getting ready for trial and reading along very avidly about the chain of questioning. And then when it came to Rod and reaching out to Rod and, and asking Rod to save his seat because he was going to go work for Obama for a while, if I remember correctly, and so that Rod could reappoint him. And Rod told him, I can't do that because I don't think I have that power. And then when it's, the prosecutor started asking or the FBI agent started asking Emanuel about specific things related to Rod, they took a break. The tape was stopped, the recording was stopped, and they resumed and followed a completely different line of questioning, which as I was getting ready for trial, I had to worry about myself, but I read that because I thought I needed to be aware of it. But now I can talk about it. You can also throw in there Jesse Jackson Jr., who sent emissaries to me, which I wrote about in my book, one offering $1.5 million, the other offering $6 million if Rod would appoint Jackson to the Senate seat. Now, I know the Reverend and his son, Jr., came out in support of Rod some months ago. That's very nice. And I know Junior, Jesse Junior, went to prison for stealing campaign funds, but he's never been held accountable for wanting to buy the Senate seat. And I even went to Washington and spoke to the House Ethics Committee when he was still in office. And I told them everything I could remember from the 302s that I read, which were fairly detailed, and nothing ever happened to him with regard to what he tried to do, buy a Senate seat which just for your listeners, everything I'm reading here is saying that Rod was convicted of trying to sell Barack Obama's Senate seat. All those charges were dropped on appeal. 
because he was not trying to sell a Senate seat. People came to me trying to buy it, but we said no. And that's a narrative that's just gotten twisted over the years. And I'm really grateful to you for giving me a chance to speak about that a little bit. So those are the two people that I said skated big time with regard to our legal ordeal. Uh, how would you characterize the, uh, you mentioned sort of the part of the narratives uh, in the media. How would you characterize the Chicago Press Corps coverage of uh, this saga over the last, uh, well, decade? You know, great question. First, I'll say extremely sympathetic for me, once I testified, you have no idea what kind of feedback I got from some of the crusty people who've been covering the Dirksen Federal Building for their entire careers. That was very uplifting, and I, I felt good going into the verdict after the jury rested. I felt very confident. Unfortunately, it was hung. But with regard to Rod, you know, that's inside baseball. That's big board politics. Uh, whatever, however they treated Rod, they probably had every right to do. He's a public person. But I will say this, over the years, even even when I went up for Rod's resentencing some years ago, when Judge Jake Zagel was still on the bench, I sat in the courtroom and all the local press that covered our case were sitting behind me. And once the judge reinstituted the 14-year sentence, both in the courtroom and on the way down in the elevator, to a person and a woman said, this is wrong. It's, it's just too harsh. You know, he's been punished enough. So, you know, I got to say that overall, there was responsibility in how they reported things and also a compassion and humanity that uh, they realized that Rod may have been overpunished by the system. And therefore, again, I say I'm very grateful to the president for seeing that, doing the right, compassionate, humane thing for my brother and his family. He is Rob Blagojevich, brother of former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich, released yesterday per the president's commutation. Also, check out his book if you want to sort of reflect back on the decade that was in Illinois politics now that Rod has been released. Fundraiser A is the book, My Fight for Freedom and Justice. Rob, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your generosity with your time. Have a good day. Sixty seconds of sanity with Dan Proft. The timer starts now. The sixty nineteen project doesn't seem to believe in America or black people. So said Brown University economics professor Glenn Lowry. The sixty nineteen project doesn't want you to believe in them either. The sixteen nineteen project aims to redefine America's founding date and its founding values. The sixty nineteen project presents a stilted view of American history. It tells of slavery, almost exclusively, but not the Civil War. It covers the Tuskegee experiment, but not the Tuskegee Airmen. Theirs is a demonstrably false story of America as the forever oppressor and black Americans as the forever victims who lack the agency to change their circumstances, much less their country. But the battle has now been joined. 
a group of leading black intellectuals, social service providers and clergy led by civil rights movement veteran Bob Woodson, launched 1776 Unites as a direct response to 1619's divisiveness and for the purpose of offering a complete accounting of American history, one that includes the stories of black Americans' resilience and achievement. They do this to correct the historical record, as Bob Woodson said, in the spirit of 1776, the date of America's true founding. And we talked to Bob Woodson earlier in the week on the show. You can uh, get more information about the 1776 initiative at 1776unites.com. And you should, because remember, the 1619 Project is backed by The New York Times and all the resources The New York Times has at its disposal. The Pulitzer Foundation, which has been producing all kinds of collateral and curriculum that's now insinuating its way into schools. Curriculum that tells this stilted story of America as a land uh, that is irredeemably racist and blacks as, as I said, forever victims, unable to exercise agency, unable to change their circumstances. And so you get ridiculous stories in The New York Times like this recent one, the headline, a classic example of the Butterfield effect. Black families came to Chicago by the thousands. Why are they leaving? Noting that more than 200,000 blacks have moved out of Chicago in the past two decades. The New York Times says racism. The reality, if you actually talk to some of the black families who have left, what a novel idea that would be. Neighborhoods not safe. Not a lot of job opportunities. Not a lot of great educational opportunities for the little ones. High cost of living compared to my options. And so people leave. It has nothing to do with pigmentation. People are fleeing Illinois and Chicago like it's on fire and have been for the past two decades. White, black, brown, and everything in between. It's about quality of life. It's about cost of living uh, in comparison to quality of life. That's why people are leaving. But that's not the New York Times story. And I do mean story, not news, because the New York Times story has to be the story of oppression and victimology, because that's how the left maintains their relevance, their power, their standing. The last thing they could do is open up the possibility that there's something other than the legacy of slavery afoot, because that could potentially begin the dislodging of core constituencies from those leftist elites. And that's the ultimate endgame of the 1619 Project. But I, I would say just this, real simple. Go to the New York Times Magazine site. Read all the essays from the academics who are participants in the 1619 Project. And then go to 1776 Unites and read the essays from those black intellectuals and make up your own mind. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Again, follow us at danproftshow.com on Twitter at Dan Proft Show as well as at Dan Proft. And... Um, We've got our friend Cheryl Atkinson, uh, award-winning investigative journalist, coming up on the show. And I wanted to revisit Michael Avenatti. She's actually, uh, Miss Atkinson has written a piece about uh, punditry with her uh, playing the role of a pundit. And uh, it uh, reminded me to go back and revisit this compendium of Michael Avenatti praise from the D.C. press corps that we played on Monday uh, in honor of his uh, conviction on extortion charges against Nike on Friday. And it got me thinking more about how after his utility 
had been exhausted as the legal representative of Stormy Daniels, and that case had uh, petered out under its own weight. These same outlets continued, continued to give Avenatti a platform because he had a law degree and he was, you know, a louder mouth than even most of their news readers and uh, pundits masquerading as newsmen and women on these cable news networks. I mean, just again, listen to the uh, hagiographies of Michael Avenatti from the leading lights of the left on your television station. He's Donald Trump's worst nightmare. Michael Avenatti. Joining us once again is Michael Avenatti. Let's bring in Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti. Michael Avenatti, thank you very much. He's out there saving the <laughs> Look, country. Don Meacham says he may be the savior of the republic. You are something of a folk hero now. I owe Michael Avenatti an apology. I've been saying enough already, Michael. I've seen you everywhere. What do you have left to say? I was wrong, brother. You have a lot to say. I uh, am just dying to hear what you think. These people all like you. I'm the only person right here Donald Trump fears more than Robert Miller. We think you guys are the tip of the spear that's going to take down Donald Trump. Michael Avenatti's a beast. Okay, that's true. And he, he's a beast. He's a beast. I hand it to yeah. her and I hand it to Michael Avenatti. But he has a great, bigger calling here. That being a lawyer bigger is calling. minimal compared to what he's doing. No one has talked tougher directly to Donald Trump on TV than Michael Avenatti. And Donald Trump is afraid to mention his name. That's fascinating. Donald Trump is terrified of Michael Avenatti. He gives Trump a run for his money more than anybody else, Michael Avenatti. An existential threat to the Trump presidency. The Democrats could learn something for you. You are messing with Trump a lot more than they are. He has no doubt created sheer panic in Donald Trump's very fragile mind. Michael Avenatti is laying down the law as guest co-host. And is he really thinking about running for president? Uh, one reason why I'm taking you seriously as a contender is because of your presence on cable news. You look at... That was Brian Stelter at the end, a media critic. <laughs> For more on this topic and a few others, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist, Emmy Award winning host of Full Measure. Cheryl, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So what about Avenatti? Oh, OK. He's representing Stormy Daniels. That's a news story. That's material. But then after that, after we're done with that, uh, he is platformed into a legitimate presidential candidate, as well as a, a font of wisdom, knowledge and news by all of these cable news outlets. It specifically it's one thing for the entertainment shows. It's another thing for people who hold themselves out as news outlets, isn't it? Well, yeah, I would agree. I mean, it was sort of the weird making of a hero out of somebody unlikely who was simply saying the things they wished for him to say. So it was coming from his mouth as well as their mouth. And it was a strange thing to behold when you're talking about as a news reporter. I would just be for self-preservation purposes, not knowing everything about him, very careful about how I would promote somebody as an opinion person and elevate him in case it turns out to be that he is not what he's cracked up to be or he's not what I had hoped he would be. You know, you're, you're putting your own credibility on the line, it seems to me, a little bit. I guess there's just no consequences. or They don't think the consequences are severe enough that so long as I'm properly on the side of excoriating Trump and doing uh, everything I can to undermine Trump's presidency, to delegitimize him in the uh, – uh, the minds of my viewers or listeners, then, uh, you know, I don't have to do any quality control on 
a Michael Avenatti or any other pundit or any store or so many stories that are presented as news as well. Well, the only people who have to go through these look backs on their decisions and behavior in the news, it seems to me, are those who are on the wrong side of things. So if they've published things that are not anti-Trump, for example, or who are on the other side, they are scrutinized and they get that kind of, you know, look back and reviewing. But it seems to me the other side doesn't. You know, Avenatti has just gone off, you know, to criminal charges, and I haven't seen any major reviews and lookbacks and mea culpa from those who used him as if, you know, a viable, legitimate source for all those months. And, and so what does that say about uh, how much uh, credibility people should assign to these cable news shows masquerading or these cable TV shows, I should say, on on ostensible news networks masquerading as news programs? I mean, are they really news programs? Well, you know, I've written two books and I'm putting the finishing touches on a third that talk about that, what I call the devolution of the news as we once knew it. And that's part of the issue that blended too closely together now or intertwined really with the news is opinion in a way, and not just on cable TV, by the way. If you look at the New York Times, I have examples of front page stories that have reporter opinions not labeled as such, just stated as if a fact blended right in there with a front page news story. There's you know examples of this happening really across the national and international news media Cable TV may be sometimes it at its worst, but it's happening. I think it's happening across the spectrum. Yeah, and it, 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 the interesting thing, too, is there's just a complete absence of standards. And, I mean, I guess I, I can't be surprised because David Remnick at The New Yorker and others upon the election of President Trump said we are suspending all our standards effectively. So he sort of telegraphed it. It's hard for me to complain about it. But when you, you but people forget, and when you see it in practice, it's remarkable. And it's little things to me that are indicative of big things. For example, Maggie Haberman at The New York Times over the weekend lamenting, uh, uh, criticizing President Trump for his appearance at the Daytona 500, suggesting that he is using uh, public resources, you know, hit traveling to uh, the Daytona 500 for political gain. Uh, OK, you want to set that as a standard, but I, I don't recall the stories about President Trump, th- uh, President Obama, excuse me, throwing out the first pitch at, at an all star game as uh, similarly problematic. So, you know, the, the, the shifting standards of what is acceptable or questionable um, that apply based on the individual rather than the conduct. And let's look at that case in, individually. Maggie Haberman works with Politico. Several political reporters were promoted to The New York Times after they got caught doing unethical things. In her case, um, she was, according to the Clinton people, used to, quote, tee up stories for the Clinton campaign and the Clinton administration, the Clintons, ahead of time that she would publish, they said, whatever they wanted her to publish so that they could get their message out. This is routine today. What you see in the news has been put out there, you know, by one side or the other. It's not original organic news. But, you know, they even had examples of things they gave her that she published without disclosing, you know, it had come this way. And what did she get out of that instead of getting a review of her work or a look back, as, as I mentioned a while ago, she got promoted. Now she covers, in a biased sense, the Trump White House as if nothing happened. Her colleague, Glenn Thrush, the same thing happened. He was doing biased things and sending at Politico copies of his news stories ahead of time to 
subjects of the Democratic National Committee for their approval. He called himself a hack in some of these internal emails, right. I guess jokingly, but indeed he was. Then he got promoted to the New York Times to cover the Trump White House as well. So there, you know, it's not it's no accident that these things are happening. So is there a reckoning coming to uh, the uh, Beltway press corps uh, other than p- perhaps in November? Is there do you do you see any uh, uh, change on the horizon for news organizations like we're uh, describing uh, in the near future? Well, I think ordinary Americans want a change. They want news sources they can rely on that separate their news and opinion. And there are moves to do just that, to start those kind of outlets. But are we going to change ourselves? First, we have to admit there's a problem. And I've yet to see the national news admit there's a problem. They simply blame Trump. Trump's the reason why there's, you know, a bad, the news has a bad rap. Trump's the reason why people call us fake news. Well, that's not true in my view, but until we understand our own role in what's happened, how are we going to fix it? Uh, when we come back, I want to uh, uh, address your uh, your turn at the punditry wheel and uh, talk a little bit about the, the Trump whisper network that Brett Stevens writes about in the New York Times, because I think the two sort of meld nicely. We're talking to Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist and Emmy award-winning host of Full Measure. We'll be right back with more. Sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist, Emmy Award winning host of Full Measure. And Cheryl, before we get to um, your uh, foray into punditry, uh, since I haven't talked to you in a while, I did want to get your reaction to Jim Lehrer's passing, because it seems like we're talking before the break about uh, where the news business is these days. And Jim Lehrer was a throwback to a, a better time. One of the things that came out upon his passing was the Jim Lehrer rules of journalism, about 15 statements of principle that he offered in terms of here's what I'm thinking about. Here's how I think about the job that I do. Here's how. Uh, here's what I'm I'm uh, uh, using as the guidepost for the kind of way I cover the news, report on the news. It's a little things. Do nothing I cannot defend. Cover and write and present every story with the care I would if the story was about me. Assume the viewer is as smart and caring and good a person as I am. Carefully separate opinion and analysis from straight news stories. I am not in the entertainment business. Not only does nobody do that, I'm not sure that there are any standards applied in so many news organizations these days other than prosecute the prevailing political agenda and eliminate the targets that we need to eliminate in advance of that agenda. I think you're right. And I didn't know he had those that list of standards, but that sounds obviously spot on. And it wouldn't be a bad idea for newsrooms to adopt that as guidance, for journalism schools to take a hard look at that. Instead, I know some journalism schools are actually teaching young journalists that putting their opinion in stories is all part of good reporting, you know, to convince people of the way you feel or what you think they ought to think, the opposite of what we ought to be doing. And it's just so shocking to me that things have changed so quickly. I mean, there's been maybe a slow slide, you could argue, but in the past 
six years or so, I think it's just picked up to hyperspeed. And then when Trump came into office, the standards that we had, and there have been written standards in the past in newsrooms, there was actually discussion of lifting them when Trump got elected because newsrooms decided he was so uniquely dangerous, we didn't have to follow the standards that we had set so that we could cover him differently. I would argue, sort of like free speech, you don't need to protect easy speech in this country. You need to protect difficult speech because that's what could lead us down the slippery slope of government censorship. You don't need to protect in the news, you know, reporting on easy topics about people that you like as a reporter. You need to have your standards when you're covering someone you may personally not like. That's when you need the standards to be sure that everybody's getting equal and fair treatment and that your reporting is accurate and on the level. But instead, we said, we don't need standards if we're covering a guy as bad as Trump. Mm-hmm. Your uh, piece in thehill.com. I'm not a professional political analyst, so my political analysis is worth about what you pay for it. But you note that you correctly predicted Trump starting in 2015 as the the guy who was going to be successful, who was going to win in 2016. You uh, write that uh, you believe he's already secured a second term, no matter who his opponent is, based on a number of reasons. And by the way, don't sell yourself short. I mean, it's only a year ago that the entire Beltway press corps said Beto O'Rourke was the front runner. So, you know, the <laughs> low standards in the uh, punditry uh, circles. But uh, seven categories that explain why you think he has uh, already secured a second term. One I like, start with the... To me, the, the funniest one, because it reminds me of a Saturday Night Live skit from the 80s when they did uh, vote for George H.W. Bush. He's taller over Mike Dukakis. And you one of the seven is Trump is taller than any of the likely Democrat nominees, twice as tall as some of them. Uh, what <laughs> why, why? Why did you say that's one of the indicators? Well, you can laugh, but that's just my gut instinct. Again, none of this throw it away, you know, use it for what it's worth. But I think in general, a tall man, and I've met and interviewed him a few times. He's very tall and very tiny. He walks into a room next to sometimes a little short person, some of the people running. It just gives you a mental picture. And the way we feel in America, I just think the tall, imposing, authoritative figure appears more presidential to us. And I feel sorry for if someone short has to go up next to him and they try to put them on a box in a debate, that's bad. (laughs) Because do you take the box so that you can be the same height? but you let everybody know and see you climbing up on a box or do you forego the box and you have to stand behind a teenier podium or appear tinier behind your podium. I don't know how they're going to, maybe they'll sit, but uh, yeah, I think that is, you know, how big a factor. I don't know, but I think it's a factor. Uh, Now, some of the other uh, factors you point to uh, one in particular that, that I think is salient because of where we are at with Mike Bloomberg is that uh, extreme vetting, you know, everything there is to know about Trump, I think we know at this point and is built into the price, whereas somebody like Bloomberg, even though he's a known quantity in New York City and a known quantity maybe generally because of half a billion dollars in television ads, every day we're getting the drip, drip, drip of previous statements he's made at previous conferences and confabs that uh, tend to uh, that tend to be problematic for him, particularly in a Democrat primary. And I feel bad, you know, that I'm not saying what people do in their past doesn't matter and the kind of person they are doesn't matter. But it's to this point where now everybody who declares to run for whatever gets smeared, you know, by their the opponents in their own party, the opponents in the other party. There's just a game that we play to find a word, a misstep, something they did a year ago or 20 or 30 years ago. It's just ridiculous how much of that has to do with what kind of leader they will really be. 
I think is very debatable, but that's just sort of the game we play. And yes, it's been played with Trump and it's been played out to the extreme. So I, like I said, I, I don't see that much more is going to come out that would shock anybody. And one of the things about prognostication is uh, you got a, a lot of credit when you're right. And you um, also lose credibility when you're wrong, particularly wildly. So, and one of the benefits Trump has is to all of the critics who said that Trump's election was the end of Western civilization from the left to the never Trumper conservatives. Well, that's just, they've just been proven wrong. And so how much standing do they have to offer these apocalyptic predictions about what a second term would be when they were so wrong about the first term? And that's what I think wins over some independents that maybe didn't want to take a chance on Trump. They now see the sky didn't fall, as I say, the stock market didn't crash, which was a big prediction. Immediately, the stock market will crash. You know, he didn't ship out the illegal immigrants on trains, as Hillary Clinton suggested. He didn't expel Muslims from the U.S., didn't start a nuclear war. I mean, you can go on and on. And the other side starts to look like they're throwing out things they know nothing about. And I think that helps, obviously, bring more people aboard. Right. And so you, you're, you, it seems to me, too, these op-eds uh, uh, of late across a lot of different outlets from a lot of different perspectives. I didn't vote for Trump in 2016, but I'm going to vote for him in 2020. You don't see a lot going the other direction. I voted for Trump in 2016 and I'm super disappointed and I'm looking for somebody else to vote for in 2020. They may say, you know, I don't like the way he communicates. I don't like the way he tweets. I wish he'd shut up. But, you know, things are pretty good is where the sort of the, the fallback position for the, you know, the surface skimming American voter. And that's a pretty good position for Trump to be in as well. And I think you're, you're spot on. And I've done some interviews and stories on who knows how large or small the group is, but there are groups of black Americans who started movements for Trump, former Democrats who started movements for Trump, Trump gay Americans who started movements for Trump, who voted for Hillary initially. So those are some net gains perhaps for him. Um, I think he is picking up and, uh, you know, losing some. But I think the net gain with, as you said, the circumstances as good as they are in, in the economy and with things not turning out to be the disaster predicted. She is Cheryl Atkinson, investigative journalist, Emmy Award winning host of Full Measure and a pretty good pundit, too. Uh, so, you know, so stick with that as uh, another uh, another offering that uh, that you have as a. I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cheryl Atkinson, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Take care. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. So uh, Rod Blagojevich, sentenced commuted by the president, has returned to his home in Ravenswood for the domestic bliss he used to enjoy. For more on uh, the commutation as well as the case, which, uh, you know, still being litigated in the public, really, not just the sentencing, but uh, who was and wasn't caught up in the prosecution of Rod Blagojevich. We're pleased to be joined by Patrick Murphy, who was an FBI special agent. Uh, part of the Blagojevich investigation. Uh, Patrick Murphy, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. What did you think of the president's decision? Had uh, Blagojevich uh, served enough time in your estimation? You know, I thought Judge Ziegel's sentence was more than appropriate, if I recall right. Um, if you actually followed the judicial guidelines, he was facing more than twice that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the context of some other sentences, I, I still think it was fair. That being said, I really didn't have a strong feeling about if, in fact, the decision was based purely on the belief that he had done enough time. But if it was at all based on some suggestion that the investigation and prosecution was anything but done fairly improperly, then I strongly disagree with that. So his argument is that uh, he was in prison for politics, the way politics is practiced, certainly in Chicago and Illinois on a, uh, a daily basis by all sorts of people in public office respond to that. How is what he did different? Uh, how would you uh, react to that uh, contention? The cynical perspective is maybe there is a lot of that going on, and he's just one of the ones that happened to get caught. That being said, I've dealt with a lot of public officials, and I'd say the majority, if not the vast majority, know where to draw the line. He had no sense of where that line was and just blew right past it. So, uh, no, he went above and beyond the norm even of what's done here. We talked to uh, Rod's brother, Rob Blagojevich, and uh, he said that uh, different representatives of Jesse Jackson had run at him with uh, cash and prizes if Jesse Jr. was appointed to that Senate seat. $1.5 million, $6 million were the numbers that he threw out. So if Rob Blagojevich had that information, and you, according to this account from 2018 in Chicago Magazine, Uh, had incriminating conversations, quote-unquote, then why not get buyer and seller? Why just seller? Well, I'm familiar with what you're talking about. And ultimately, it comes down to um, the weight of evidence. You know, there are a lot of, uh, as Rob Grant, I listened to one of his interviews on other stations earlier, there were a lot of accusations, a lot of evidence of other acts that weren't charged. And it wasn't necessarily that they didn't happen, but it was just not enough evidence that we felt was needed to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So you never had your I mean, I mean, there's been competing narratives about why you moved, why the FBI moved in when it did. Uh, Oh, he was going to appoint himself to the Senate seat. Mm, uh, The Tribune was publishing these stories. Uh, He was um, uh, he was about to consummate the deal. It just seems strange to me. I don't really feel like I've ever gotten a satisfactory, complete answer from the government about uh, the timing of this when you're up on surveillance and you have buyer and seller. So the the sale was ostensibly in process for some time. Certainly the conversations that have leaked uh, look like he would uh, provide evidence that he was shopping it. So um, how, how is it that it couldn't be put together to get seller and buyer again? I, I just am not clear on this. Well, the timing, um, there was negotiations in process at that time. But as you may recall, the Chicago Tribune published the story, I think it was the morning of December 7th or something like that. And uh, at that point, uh, Rob Blagojevich was um, basically in cleanup mode and in reversal mode trying to cover his tracks and and uh, was canceling meetings and things like that. So at that point, there was nothing else to be gained by having the wiretap up because he was aware that something's, that his conversations were being recorded. So at that point, there was no evidence that you had, not compelling evidence or evidence that you could have pulled together through witness testimony, statements adverse to interest from witnesses like uh, Rob and Rod, for that matter, that would have identified uh, criminal acts, criminal intent by a buyer for that sentence. Nobody. I'm not saying there wasn't evidence, but I'm just saying that in in the whole, um, 
and this is more the decision of prosecutors than, than me as an investigator. Right. But frankly, I, I totally agree with what they thought is that we just didn't have enough evidence on certain transactions to basically prove beyond reasonable doubt that that there was a cool action there. We're speaking with former FBI agent Patrick Murphy about the commutation of former Illinois Governor Rod Lugovich's prison sentence. When we come back, Patrick, I want to ask you about uh, Rod's uh, constant demand. Release all the tapes. Release all the surveillance tapes the FBI had, all the conversations the FBI had. We'll pick that up with Patrick Murphy when we return. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Patrick Murphy talking about uh, President Trump's commutation of former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich's sentence, prison sentence. And I uh, want to talk about the tapes that, you know, Blagojevich's perennial lament was release the tapes, release the tapes, release the tapes, all the tapes. And so what about any suggestion? And I mean, again, we don't know. So this is it's an easy thing to say to suggest something nefarious or something incriminating about somebody else. Are there conversations on tapes that have not been made public that would be relevant to understanding what was happening and perhaps provide more basis for understanding the choices that were made by federal law enforcement? No, I don't believe so. So ultimately, that call was made by Judge Zagel, who I have a lot of respect for. So he applied the laws he saw it, and I think it was correctly so, to determine what recordings were relevant and what weren't. One analogy I've heard in the past, I think Judge Zagel used something similar as charge him with bank robbery. You don't have to show that he entered the bank 20 other times and did not rob the bank. It's just the fact that he robbed the bank that one of the 20 times that's relevant. That's fair, but there's also the argument that there were people who were protected. Now, again, this is a theory, but I want to get your reaction to it to respond to what people are saying. The idea that there were other people, to continue the bank robbery analogy, there were other people that were involved in conversations about the bank robbery that were not charged, that we've never heard about their role in the planning of this, and the names like Rahm Emanuel and Valerie Jarrett and Jesse Jackson Jr., whose name has been mentioned, but they they come into this. And so people say, again, they were engaged in conversations with Blagojevich about a quid pro quo for a Senate seat at some level, and yet they walk away from this without incident. Well, in any investigation, you have a lot of different people that might, in one aspect or another, get involved in the criminal activity, maybe tangentially or even more so. But ultimately, you can only present in court what's relevant and what the government believes is be, is sufficient to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the activity occurred. Um, and it's not the job of the government to reveal every aspect of the investigation. There's certainly avenues like FOIA to try to access that type of information. But as far as the criminal process, it, we're actually not allowed to disclose information that frankly isn't being right. brought before the court. Right. Only Jim Comey can do that. That's an aside. Uh, I, I strike that remark. I, I'm, 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 I'm objecting to myself. 
Um, but uh, with respect to those conversations, what about the assertion that the 302s of interviews with subjects, that's something that should be disclosed as well? Is there any information you think would be germane uh, from the, the 302s? Um, well, I roll out of those 302s, so I, I'm not sure. Are you talking about the FOIA process? I mean, at this point, I imagine that there are a lot of FOIAs being filed, filed right. to obtain those types of reports. And I'm not aware. I'm assuming that at this point, at some point, those uh, 302s can be released. Uh, but I don't pretend to be an expert on that. And what about Rob Lagojevich? Rob with a B, not with a D. What did his brother do? Why was it uh, appropriate for to for to to arrest him and to uh, prosecute him? Um, well, we didn't arrest him, um, but uh, he was prosecuted uh, because he was directly involved in some of the corrupt transactions that his brother, the governor, was involved in. So at that point, Robert was his uh, the, heading, the head of his campaign and as such was very involved in some of the uh, quid pro quo type transactions that were going on. Um, ultimately, the jury hung him, uh, particularly with regard to Robert. Um, he certainly wasn't acquitted by the, the jury, but ultimately the government decided to just focus on the governor for the retrial. Right. Um, but are you suggesting that that Rob, though, that was a, a legitimate uh, indictment for somebody who was materially participating in a criminal conspiracy of shaking down children's hospitals and selling a Senate seat? Yeah, I believe the government was uh, correct when we charged him the first time. Uh, I felt that there was some strong evidence against him. I mean, you know, again, I, and I'm we're holding you to remember these details from uh, a decade ago, so I understand. But but it is it just a, as a as well, I'm, I'm a little bit more than a layman, but as sort of a layman, at least with respect to this case, it, it just strikes me as odd. And by the way, I'm a I'm not a supporter of the commutation of Blago. I'm a supporter of the prison sentence that was handed down. I, it doesn't bother me at all. So this is not being an apologist for Blago. But with respect to Rob, the way that you characterize that, you know, so so he's materially involved in these conversations, and that's what implicates him. And Jesse Jackson Jr. and through emissaries is materially involved on the buy side, but that doesn't implicate him. Can you see how people would be confused about those distinctions? Well, I, I, I point to the weight of the evidence. Um, frankly, there was no recorded conversation of a Congressman Jackson. Was there an effort there to get? Were, was there an effort to get a warrant to surveil him? Yeah, I can't comment on that. I believe that's not something that's out there in public domain, so I can't talk about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but keep in mind that the investigation was cut short because of the Tribune story. Um, we were still chasing down uh, avenues of corrupt activity. But once that story hit, uh, we had to pull the plug because at that point, uh, Ron Begoyevich was totally, and I'll call it cleanup mode. At, at, the, at the point the Tribune stories were breaking, how, how long had the investigation been ongoing? Well, the investigation started out uh, with a shakedown in Naperville, the Edward Hospital, back in late 2003, early 2004. Um, but it just kind of progressed from there. I mean, Rob which was not a main target at that point. So the the investigation, though, going back to the Edward Hospital, the investigation had been ongoing for the better part of four years. Right. Um, okay. Uh, Patrick Murphy, his former FBI agent who was on the uh, Blagojevich case, 
uh, that's uh, recounted. I'll tweet this out. It's a good piece in Chicago Magazine, chicagomag.com, about uh, he and his colleague in that day, um, which provides uh, some of the details that, you know, it, they're hard to recall if you, uh, if you don't have, um, I, I guess, the photographic memory of a Rod Blagojevich, allegedly. Uh, Patrick Murphy, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. The more you'll know, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Well, on the topic of President Trump's pardons and commutations, we've spent a good deal of time this show on Rod Blagojevich, former Illinois governor and celebrity apprentice contestant. I wanted to uh, have a comment or two on Michael Milken. Uh, this was where Blagojevich was, in my estimation, not a clear decision. It would have been fine for me if Blagojevich had uh, served out the full sentence. Michael Milken's pardon was appropriate. Wall Street Journal editorial board opined on it. The uh, presidential uh, action recognized that the Milken prosecution of the ni- late 1980s, early 90s, was an example of prosecutorial excess in an era like our own when political gales were raging about the quote-unquote greed decade. But in fact, Milken was a great innovator, and he was. He invented the high-yield bond market, these high-yield corporate bonds that were instrumental in launching a number of corporate giants, Barnes & Noble, MCI at the time, even CNN. The uh, journal opined that the high-yield bond market that is now a financial staple in the late 1980s made capital available to entrepreneurs and young companies that otherwise couldn't get it. In the process, Milken and his employer, Drexel Burnham, challenged established Wall Street firms and corporate elites, and that innovation helped to usher in two decades of rapid American growth and prosperity. It was the inability of those looking at Milken, targeting Milken, really, to understand what he was doing, as well as to uh, succumb to the political rhetoric at the time that leads people to uh, treat uh, the Michael Milkens as indistinguishable from genuine crooks like Ivan Bosky. Hmm. It's also worth pointing out that unlike Blagojevich, when uh, Milken was uh, originally given a 10-year sentence, uh, it was later reduced by a judge in a court of law to two years. Most of the original securities prosecutions of that era, the journal notes, were overturned by the Second Circuit Court of Appeals. Of course, that was after Milken had served 21 months in prison. The Milken prosecution, oh, by the way, who was the U.S. Attorney in New York, Southern District, who prosecuted Milken? Rudy Giuliani. But to his credit, Rudy Giuliani was one of those who pushed for the president to pardon Michael Milken. He knows the prosecution of Milken was inappropriate. And there's a good write up. I just wanted to get to this three felonies a day. I mentioned in a discussion about Bloomberg and the Christopher Hitchens piece in the first hour, Harvey Silvergate, Silverglate, excuse me. If you haven't read it, criminal defense attorney, 
wrote this uh, bestseller, Three Felonies a Day. And in it, he uh, offered a treatment of the uh, Milliken prosecution, some details uh, of what the prosecutors did in that case to try to uh, leverage his brother, you know, put their, his brother in the crosshairs to make Milken plead out, leverage his 92-year-old grandfather at the time. But it's a good exam- it is a good example of prosecutorial excess and President Trump's pardon of Michael Milken, even though he has no interest in getting back into the securities business and even though he's still a multi-billionaire, nobody's having a red tag sale for Milken. But it sets the record straight. And while you shouldn't be able to have a different standard of justice to your benefit if you're wealthy, you also shouldn't be treated as less than an American citizen with due process rights and an expectation of fair play by prosecutors because you're wealthy. And Michael Milken was, and President Trump corrected that as best you can after the fact. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on Twitter at Dan Proft Show, as well as at Dan Proft. Thank you for joining us, as always. Yesterday, President Trump uh, tried to uh, middle the issue of uh, his tweeting and Attorney General Barr's response to his tweeting, saying that uh, he has full confidence in both, full confidence in Barr as his Attorney General and full confidence in his social media musings. I have total confidence in my attorney general. Do you agree with his statement that you, that you should stop tweeting about Justice Department well, issues? Well, people like that, but, you know, everybody has the right to speak their mind. And I use social media. I guess I use it well because here I am. I'm here. And I probably wouldn't have gotten here without social media because I certainly don't get fair press. So I wouldn't have gotten here without social media. And perhaps with all of the hoaxes, you had the impeachment hoax, you had the Mueller hoax, you had the Russia, Russia, Russia nonsense. All uh, scams. And he recognizes that uh, his tweeting in certain instances, as with the Stone sentencing recommendation or the McCabe investigation that was closed last week, makes his attorney general's job more challenging. Your comments on Twitter are making it impossible to do his job. Are you making his job impossible? Yeah, I do make his job harder. I do agree with that. I think that's true. He's a very straight shooter. We have a great attorney general and. He's working very hard, and he's working against a lot of people that don't want to see good things happen, in my opinion. That's my opinion, not his opinion. That's my opinion. You'll have to ask what his opinion The attorney general is a man with incredible integrity. So his strong vote of confidence for Attorney General Barr, which uh, makes eminent sense. But there's something implicit in what President Trump was saying about uh, his social media presence and his ability to fight back through those communication channels. That's important, particularly in the context of... Yet again, uh, someone who uh, arguably, and I don't think there's a very compelling counterargument, should have been facing criminal charges and former FBI Deputy Director Andy McCabe avoiding said charges. Being an FBI guy means only having to say you're sorry for lying to the FBI, not the same accommodation afforded Trump administration officials, campaign operatives, as we know. And Mark Penn, who's a Clintonista, former Hillary Clinton pollster, was getting to that as well in his conversation with Maria Bartiroma yesterday. 
Well, I'm, I'm a little puzzled that Andrew McCabe wasn't prosecuted because he was on tape uh, in the second interview lying, and it did receive the strong condemnation uh, of the inspector general. But it does look like Barr is conducting a, a thorough investigation here. Look, on Roger Stone, I wrote two articles over a year ago saying that this was an incredibly uh, unfair prosecution of Roger Stone. When you look at the kind of lying with real national import that happened here with the, with the Pfizer warrants uh, and all of these unprosecuted uh, lies that went on uh, by the FBI. Even you look at Sally Yates was setting up Michael Flynn with the quote Logan Act, which we know was a pure fantasy. So there's so much here that has that is really we have not seen accountability yet. This is really the last hope for accountability. You're right. It doesn't look good with the pass on McCabe, but let's wait and see. Real accountability has not come despite these reports that show obvious wrongdoing. And the last best hope for a real reckoning, the Durham investigation. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Joy Pullman. She is the executive editor of The Federalist, Federalist.com, and she has written on the topic. Joy, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for asking me. Does uh, Mark Penn have it uh, pretty much sussed out that uh, the Durham investigation uh, that's being uh, overseen by Attorney General Barr is is the last hope for a reckoning, at least uh, one that's not at the ballot box? That seems to be the case right now. You know, it's really hard to know until kind of the results of the investigation come out. But given everything that's happened over the past three years since President Trump has been elected, it's very clear that there are a lot of high level officials um, who are not who are supposed to be subject to officials who are elected by the people which is extremely important in for America to remain a republic, is for government officials to be, you know, in, in some sense accountable to the voters through elected officials. And instead, what has been happening under the Trump administration is repeat, and no more is it seen more than in these politicized choices, whether to prosecute someone kind of seems to hinge on whether they supported Donald Trump or tried to use their power to harm his, his interests. So what we've seen over the past number of years are instances like this in which kind of unelected officials are running amok with their power instead of being subject to the voters and the people the voters have elected to just technically hold the power. So there's kind of this war here between the administrative state and elected officials. And I just hope that the elected officials are aware of the fact that this is a threat to their power, but their power only matters in as much as it is an extension of we the people's power and that democratic Republican control of our government is under threat. AP reported late last night that Attorney General Barr was confiding in friends that he may resign over Trump's tweeting. Justice Department rejected that suggestion, saying he has no plans to go anywhere. Did the president strike the right tone with respect to this you know, slight conflict of interest? That, look, I, I get that I make Barr's job more difficult, but uh, look, I have other considerations, including I need ways to fight back and I need ways to call things that are wrong out. And I need to call bad actors out, too, that have been part of these uh, arguably fifth column actions against me and this administration. Is that uh, is that the right play for Trump with respect to pushing back, but also keeping uh, his attorney general in the fold? Well, I am not a legal expert, but I do understand that, you know, it, it gets in the way of the ability of the Justice Department to prosecute someone like McCabe to have the president weighing in on it. For one thing, it affects the way that the judges and juries may view the case. You know, so in that case, tactically, you know, the president always yes. weighing in on things like this could undercut his own best interests. 
at the end of the day, the Justice Department and the Attorney General, these are, again, these are agencies that are executive branch agencies. They are supposed to be subject to the elected president's power and his authority and his policies. I mean, you know, they're supposed to carry out the policies and the programs of the man that the American people elected to be in charge of that department. But it, so it there's does, a lot of talk. But it does Go make ahead. sense. It does make sense for Barr, it's in my estimation, to push back and want to make it clear that he is independent, that he is the people's attorney general, even though he's an executive branch cabinet officer. And part of that is because he, uh, he has an interest in having the Durham investigation and other decisions being made at justice be seen as legitimate by as large a swath of the American population as possible. That's true. But I, I mean, I, I'm, what I'm really not sure about is to the extent to which, you know, that legitimacy is possible because, it, uh, you know, yeah. we all know, everybody listening, um, that, you know, our, our institutions have become so politicized that it may be really impossible for him to achieve that. I do think it's a noble goal, however, right, because the American people do need to have, you know, what happens, decisions made about who's prosecuted and why to look like they're as fair and equally applied as possible, right, because otherwise it undercuts our confidence in institutions that are really important to the health of our country. Well, exactly. And, and uh, I mean, to your point, look, I mean, what more undermines the notion that we have the rule of law as opposed to the rule of men? Is it uh, McCabe getting a pass on uh, charges that, for conduct that was almost precisely the same as the conduct, say, for right. General Flynn? Or is it uh, Trump tweeting and Barr and prosecutors at the Department of Justice making their own decisions uh, ir- right. ir- irrespective of the Trump tweeting. Right. So I, right, I agree with that. So, well, I mean, what we have here is just and it's been laid. The, the sequence of events has really made the difference clear. So it looks like obvious politicization when, again, you have a number of people, you know, Roger Stone, Mike Flynn, George Papadopoulos, uh, you know, all though they were all convicted, harassed, you know, by the legal system for years for doing the exact same thing that McCabe was just let off the hook for. And in fact, McCabe did it on much more important public. I mean, he he lied about his oversight of the investigation into Hillary Clinton's email server. Right. You know, that's a lot more important than Roger Stone gossiping about, you know, the fact that he actually didn't know anything about what WikiLeaks was doing with, you know, their dumps of those emails. But is, so, but, I mean, but, but is if the, you just assume that they're both the same, it's, it looks like there's corruption going on here because the only difference is what side the person prosecuted is on. But would you agree that the most important thing here is to keep uh, Barr in his post, that Barr uh, re- uh, remains an asset to the administration? Oh, 100 percent. He's been a wonderful, really excellent attorney general. He has, you know, absolutely been, you know, completely fair and careful in all of his pronouncements. He's been extremely careful to stick to the Constitution, to the rule of law. You know, so I've been following his career and not just on this specific Russiagate stuff, but, for example, on issues related to the First Amendment. He has been a very strong attorney general. And we've had a weakening, you know, of of First Amendment protections, especially for people's free speech and the religious exercise. Um, So he's been an excellent attorney general across the board, and it would be a huge loss to the Trump administration in the country if he were to step down. She is the executive editor of The Federalist, thefederalist.com, and uh, check out her piece, DOJ Fuhrer, latest attempt to help Democrats hide Spygate, undermine elections. Joy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show.
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, we're going to continue on this topic because we must, because you know the Democrat Socialists will continue to prosecute the case, and they've enlisted so much of the leadership of the West civic institutions. It's a dangerous, perhaps more dangerous than any of the individual Democrat Socialist presidential candidates. I'm talking about climate as religion. I'm talking about Mother Gaia as God. I'm talking about ridiculous anti-people movements like the human extinction movement. Truly, academics and activists arguing for the immediate ceasing of procreation by us uh, inconvenient human beings. And against that backdrop, Jeff Bezos' $10 billion pledge this week, $10 billion to fight climate change by supporting uh, God only knows what more of the uh, deep thinking from Greta Thunberg and those of her ilk, Leo DiCaprio. How dare you? Uh, funny, not getting immediate credit for it. Business Insider reporting this week. Shoppers slam Amazon for unnecessary packaging against the backdrop of Bezos' $10 billion pledge. He can never get woke enough. You're never going to be satiated, Jeff. In response to that, Steve Malloy, JunkScience.com, tweeted out, Bezos is on his way to learning just what a fool he has been by trying to appease climate bedwetters. Indeed, for more on this topic, we're pleased to be joined by the founder of JunkScience.com, a member of President Trump's EPA transition team, Steve Malloy. Steve, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me. So uh, you are not impressed with uh, Jeff Bezos' $10 billion commitment to make <laughs> us... Uh, Greener and leaner and uh, better? No, well, the whole thing is ridiculous. Look, let's just, you know, $10 billion sounds like a lot, but you've got to sort of put this in perspective. I mean, the world has spent trillions of dollars on climate so far, and emissions have only gone up. Uh, Germany in particular has spent alone $500 billion, and its emissions have gone up. You know, Bezos throwing out grants to activist groups and junk scientists is going to accomplish nothing. It's not even appeasing his own employees who are up in arms about what their own company does. I mean, the whole thing is just so bizarre. Maybe that'll just yeah. subsidize more like Terry McAuliffe's solar panel gambits and other uh, other junk businesses predicated on junk science. Yeah, but even with the subsidies, these things are all going to fail. You know, they're all just surrenders waiting to happen. These things don't make economic sense on their own. You wonder, like, Bezos is obviously a brilliant businessman. <laughs> what is he thinking? Well, uh, No you, one could be this dumb. You point out uh, that uh, some of these visionaries and futurists, at least that we're told that's what they are, have, um, you know, engaged in the sort of magical thinking you get from politicians on a debate stage. You point out it was just a year ago Bezos was talking about giant space colonies where up to a trillion human beings could live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know what this shows me is like so Bezos is, you know, he's really brilliant at running Amazon and you know thinking it up and and carrying it out to this point. But I tell you, you get him off that and he's not mortal man, he's worse. You know, he's just a fish out of water in any sort of other topic. He's a lot like Elon Musk. These guys are brilliant at, at how they made their original fortune. Everything else is just kind of this, you know, muddle. They, I think they let the, their success, their early success go to their heads. They think they can do anything, and, and it turns out they can't really do anything else. Well, we see that all the time, too. I mean, obviously, that would yeah. include uh, the Hollywood set, too. I, I'm good at pretending to yeah. be somebody else, so now I'm a climate scientist. I'm a labor <laughs> right. economist. I, I'm a social welfare policy analyst. I've, I right. have all these uh, hidden talents, even though I've got an eighth-grade education. Right. I mean, Bezos, I mean, he, you know— I mean, just I mean, look at his own personal life. I mean, he he managed that into a $40 billion divorce. I mean, 
<laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, sure. This uh, interview you gave over at Breitbart uh, is uh, positively uh, Yakov Shmirnoffian. Climate is a sort of like, you know, the old Yakov Shmirnoff in, in, uh, in America. You watch TV in, in yeah. Soviet Russia. TV watch you. Um, you say uh, <laughs> climate is not about controlling the weather. It's about controlling you. Um, so uh, develop well, that a little bit with respect to well, CO2 sure. emissions. I mean, and There's no big secret here. All you need to do is listen to everything that climate alarmists or bedwetters, as I like to call them, you know, want to do. And they want to control every aspect of your life. They want to tell you where to live, what kind of job you can have, what kind of car you can drive, what kind of food you can eat. You know, they don't want you eating meat. They don't want you living in suburbia. Uh, they want you driving an electric car if you're not, you know, if you don't already bike or walk. They don't want you to fly. They just want to control every. They want to tell you how many children to have. Best best answer there is zero. Mm-hmm. They just want to control every aspect of your life. I, I wrote a book about this ten years ago, the dawn of the Obama administration, called Green Hell: How Environmentalists Plan to Control Your Life and What You Can Do About It. And uh, it's just all you got to do is just listen to listen to the Democrat debates when they talk about climate. You know, they want to get rid of cheeseburgers. Uh, Kamala Harris wanted to tell people what kind of trash bags they could use in their kitchen. I mean, there's just no part of your life that is too small for them to be in charge of. And meanwhile, according to the Energy Information Administration, CO2 emissions in the United States have actually declined from a peak in 2009 of about 6 billion metric tons to uh, now about 5 billion and projected to decline still in 2030 because we've got more energy efficient and that against the backdrop of industrialization over the last 50 years pulling hundreds of millions of people out of abject poverty and that's also a portion of the discussion that the eco-terrorists faithful don't want to have. Well, you know, I don't even notice we've got so much more energy efficient. The energy efficiency never uh, tends to work out. But what we did do is the whole fracking revolution basically destroyed the coal industry. So, you know, use of coal has been cut in half. But, you know, as power demand increases in this country, we're going to be burning more natural gas and our emissions are going to go back up. In a lot of ways, it doesn't even matter because the rest of the world is going through the roof, uh, particularly in Asia. Wait till Africa comes online. Emissions are are not going down, and atmospheric CO2 is definitely not going down. So, yeah, you know, poor Bezos, I guess he just doesn't need that $10 billion or he would, was going to donate it anyway. Isn't that so fundamental, though, too, to um, the uh, folly of what they're suggesting is by focusing strictly on the West, you're telegraphing that your interest is only really in defiling the West, deconstructing the West. Your interest really isn't in reducing CO2 emissions or saving the planet or all these other grandiose things that you say. You know, you often hear about uh, you know, climate bedwetters saying, oh, well, you know, we need to demonstrate global leadership. You know, we need to lead the Chinese and the Indians into cutting their emissions. I mean, they're just laughing at us. I mean, these are... While they build more coal barely, plants. Right. I mean, they're all building coal plants. Even Japan is building more coal plants. Japan is bringing on five new coal plants just this year. We're the only ones trying to reduce emissions and make our and destroy our standard of living. Of course, Europe is doing the same thing. And none of it is going to matter. I mean, CO2 emissions, as I said, are going up. Uh, atmospheric CO2 is going up. None of that is ever going to change. Uh, we're just wasting our money. And it's this mania that has swept the world. And I don't know what we're going to do. I guess, you know, we're going to uh, – unfortunately, I think it's going to take some real global calamity to shake the world out of this. You know, today – uh, this has particularly been upsetting to me. 
Uh, I, I see, you know, the UN is talking about how climate disruption threatens the future of children. Uh, I, you know, Greta, the climate puppet, um, Greta Thunberg, uh, she's on, on Twitter today bemoaning what, you know, the climate for children. Well, you know, the reality is is that 7,500 children are going to die today from malnutrition, but nobody's, nobody's doing anything about that. Hmm. And it's 7,500 children every day, and it's a real problem. It's, it's a preventable problem. Nobody seems to care about that. All they're worried about is what you know, the weather is going to be like in the year 2100. It's ridiculous. It's almost like it's about them and not about other people. Golly. Almost. Almost <laughs> like that. Steve Malloy, founder of JunkScience.com, member of President Trump's EPA transition team. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate hey, it. thanks for having me. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and I love uh, photojournalists and op-ed writers who uh, have and take great insight on American culture from institutions that are otherwise generally ignored, that uh, we just uh, consider sort of part of the the backdrop of our lives, but don't necessarily think about what they imply about our culture and uh, about who we are as a people. And uh, one such op-ed writer, one such uh, photojournalist I'm thinking of is Chris Arnotti, who we've had on the show, uh, who's excellent. And he's mentioned in uh, one of the pieces by our next guest, he's Addison Del Mastro, who is uh, in written form what uh, Chris Arnotti is in uh, photo form in part. He's the assistant editor of The American Conservative. He is going to help us understand why the all-you-can-eat Chinese buffet keeps America free. Who knew that that was the front line of our freedom, the Chinese buffet? Uh, Addison, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, Dan. Uh, thanks for having me. You uh, write the uh, humble, dated Chinese buffet with its Americanized takeout fare and faded wall-sized crane portraits with its oversized <laughs> interior and unpretentious manners is endangered. The buffet is diverse, yet simple, populous, rough around the edges. It's indeed an American institution, and America would be poorer and hungrier without it. Uh, so develop the... Uh, the argument about the cultural importance of the buffet and why you think uh, it is declining in popularity. Well, let me start by saying I'm very um, flattered to be compared to Chris Arnotti. I haven't been at it nearly as long as he has, but um, I'm glad you see that that there. And I, I do know him as well. He's he's wonderful. Um, but you know, he writes about you know fast food, and that these fast food places that elite folks tend to sort of look down on or not want to eat at, that they actually provide something of a public service, that they're a place usually poorer folks can just go and sit for sort of an unlimited amount of time and eat something for a couple of dollars. And, and uh, you know, the more that our society becomes sort of mechanized, and I, I write about this in the article, that the speed of things seems to be increasing whether it's the ordering line at a fast casual restaurant or it's um, having to queue up at a kiosk at an airport or a hotel without a front desk or something like that, that there's this rush and there's this reliance on, on apps and technology. And there's almost, um, maybe I'm reading into it a little too much, but there's almost something to me authoritarian about that. And the Chinese buffet, and for that matter the McDonald's, is sort of the opposite of all of those trends. It's just a big, comfortable space where you can sit and eat 
or not eat. You don't even have to eat. You can just sort of pay your entrance fare and, and just sit there for the whole day. Sometimes I bring a sketchbook or I just read the news on my phone or I watch the TV or something. And I, I see other people doing that, college students or groups of people or you know large families after Sunday service or something like that. It's, it's a bit of a um, refuge, as and, and Arnotti in his uh, work points it out. It, it's a gathering place. It can be a gathering place, but also a refuge, uh, as you're describing, from, you know, for lack of a better description, the hustle and bustle of modern life. Yeah, a refuge. I, th- I think that's, um, you know, the right word. And so, obviously, the sort of immediate appeal of the buffet is, wow, uh, as much as much lo mein and general sauce chicken as I can eat, right? <laughs> and when I was a kid, that was the only appeal. But I've come to appreciate that there's something more to it than that. Um, and, and you asked me, why do I think they're uh, declining? I mean, the decline of the buffet as a segment is a is actually something of an economic story that's been covered um in the news in the past few years, and one of the uh, one of the reasons that is cited a lot is that they're just not cool. They're not Instagrammable. They're not um, <clears throat> they're not spectacular. Farm to table. Yeah, right. Plate. Yeah. Not um, not chef driven. Not local. They basically go against all of the trends, both that I mentioned in terms of technology and and the trends in the restaurant industry in terms of slimming restaurants down and focusing on a you know on the identity of the chef or on a handful of ingredients or what have you um and so just economically they're sort of a little bit out of touch with where the industry is trending and uh, one interesting anecdote i learned in in researching for this article and in uh eating episodes <laughs> is that the only all you can eat chinese buffet in manhattan and the only one in Washington, D.C., both uh, shut down in the last five years or so. And I don't believe there are any um, American buffets left in, in those cities either. So that's interesting. That's sort of an anecdote that tracks with, with some of the coverage that I've read saying that this segment overall is, is in fact, in decline. I, I want to uh, pick up a little bit more on the, uh, the importance of the all-you-can-eat buffet and also turn our attention to what the ice cream truck teaches us about America, too. Uh, we'll have more with Addison Del Mastro, assistant editor of the American Conservative, right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is the Dan Prof Show. We're back with Addison Del Mastro, assistant editor of the American Conservative, and we were talking about his piece at theamericanconservative.com, the American uh, all-you-can-eat buffet, or the Chinese version in America of the all-you-can-eat buffet, and its importance as an institution, what it indicates uh, as about America, past and present, and particularly as it's in decline, as we were most recently discussing. And I wonder if part of this, too, because you make mention in your piece, Addison, about these are family-friendly places. Uh, affordable places for uh, lower to middle income families uh, in particular and kid friendly and, you know, and it's decent food and it's communitarian and all those things. As the nature of family has changed, I wonder if that also has an implication uh, in, in, in some ways has uh, had consequences for the uh, all you can eat buffets as a, uh, a place for a family meal. 
Yeah, you know, I'm 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 sure that probably does. Um, one of the things when when you talk about, like I mentioned before, that millennials don't find the buffet to be Instagrammable or whatever, that demographic that we're talking about, obviously not all millennials are, are these single urban affluent folks, but within that demographic, there does seem to be less of a prevalence of, of marriage and family and having kids and all that stuff. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it makes sense. If you look at the restaurants that are trendy, very few of them are kid-friendly. Um, very few of them are large places where you can just bring a lot of people. Many of them, you know, need reservations. And so one of the interesting things about this is is that sort of collides with class and with class division so that you have this phenomenon similar to what Chris Arnotti talks about with fast food that it's difficult to, to put it into words, but there's something uncomfortable about the fact that just a plain, ordinary place that ordinary people can go without having to prepare no babysitters, no reservations, that, that that's almost coming to be looked down on. And not because people look down on that specifically, but because the way that that America has become divided in some ways, that's one of the side effects. And that's something I noticed, that here's something we're trained to look down on, people maybe from my demographic. It doesn't look so bad to me. It looks kind of fun yeah. to take a huge family there after church or whatever or, or have a birthday party there feels like it's very low stress. It feels just like a, a fun thing to do. And, and, I, I and think you, one of the last lines in my piece was maybe it wouldn't hurt the elites to just join that crowd once in a while. Maybe we could learn something. Well, right. And you, you suggest, oh, well, I'll just I'll quote from your piece. At the buffet, there are no class distinctions. All are welcome. It's a quotidian place for the everyman that's family friendly, provides even a small opportunity to exercise one's liberty just in terms of you know choice in America. Um, yeah. yeah, I think that I, I think that's right. And I think that is part of the appeal. But it, it seems uh, in so many spaces that uh, what businesses sell is exclusivity, is separation rather than anything that's communitarian. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think you see that with stuff like AirPods. I, I think that's what they're called. I, I don't have a pair of them. Um, but a, a lot of consumerism is and really always has been about status, right? I mean, the thing about the Instagram point that I made is actually, it's not just that we like to take pictures of, of our plates. That would be kind of silly just to do that. It's really about social um, signaling and being able to post that online and saying, look look at what restaurant I went to the other night. And, you know, yes, right. I'm not immune to that tendency myself, but the fact that your, your um, culinary choices would be in part determined by what other people think of them when you post them online, I'm not sure that's great. I mean, <laughs> well, right. It's it's one of those things where something it, worth interrogating a little bit. Yeah, I mean, can you can you uh, enjoy the uh, three star Michelin rated restaurant and also the Old Country Buffet? I, I certainly can. Uh, and the, the question yeah. is, if you yeah. can't, if you can't, <laughs> what does that say about you? Yeah, it's interesting. Well, <laughs> well, all right. So I want to rope in this this other matter too because we've got. Uh, a deep dive on the uh, all-you-can-eat buffet. Now we need to do a deep dive on the ice cream truck because you write, the endurance of the ice cream truck should give us hope for the future of civilization. Boy, that's a lot riding on the ice cream truck. Why do you say that? <laughs> um, yeah, you know, pe people seem to like these pieces. I actually did a radio segment on the ice cream truck article back when it uh, went up, and, and I, th I think that line was pulled out as well. But, but the point I'm making there is a similar point to the buffet, that when you think of the ice cream truck, you think of 
kids, you think of families, you think of ordinary people. And I'm sort of writing that in response to some of the talk on the right, politically on the right, um, scaremongering sometimes about the decline of the family and, you know, nobody's having kids. And, and it occurs to me, here I am in northern Virginia, this is sort of ground zero for all of these trends that we're talking about, and that I have ice cream trucks rolling around my neighborhood in the summer. I was walking in the forest, you know, forest paths, and I could hear ice cream trucks from out um, from a condo complex like half a mile away. And it just occurred to me, well, you know, there are families here, there are kids here. It's not like we're living in some dystopia. If you read my work, sometimes it might sound like I'm painting that picture. But then you hear an ice cream truck, and, you know, obviously that's sort of a barometer for whether those those ordinary people living ordinary lives are still out there, and, you know, they are still out there. Well, and it's also to some extent the transmission of values, transmission of culture, right? Because anybody who... Uh, has lived through the era of the ice cream truck, which I suppose is all of us at present, just about all of us except the very young. But as you say, the ice cream trucks still exist, still uh, circumnavigate suburban neighborhoods. You have the same Pavlovian response to the ice cream truck, or you remember the Pavlovian response you had, which is as soon as I hear one of those ice cream truck jingles, I'm out the door running after that truck. Yeah, that's right. Um, Part of the reason that the decline of these things concerns me is, is, I mean, obviously they're not gone, but they are at, at lower numbers than, than at the peak point, is that I, I wonder what kids growing up today, what what those equivalent memories for them will be. And I mean, obviously there will be something that takes that place, but I, I do have fond memories of just my ordinary suburban upbringing. And it sounds funny for me to say this when I'm so young, but I hope that the next generation has that as well and that it's not all stuff tied to the phone or to an app or to, to competing with people digitally. I hope there are just those ordinary, relaxed moments of excitement that you can look back on and that can, you know, in your adult age, put a little bit of wonder into the world. Absolutely. I mean, as uh, you know, as you get older, you realize... You don't have as very many moments better than chasing that ice cream truck, at least, at least for me. Addison Del Mastro, assistant editor of the American Conservative, fun pieces. I'll tweet them both out at Dan Proft and at Dan Proft Show. The all-you-can-eat buffet and the ice cream truck, what they mean to America. Addison, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show, and uh, boy, this is uh, disappointing. And uh, just after Valentine's Day, Senator Cory Booker after having to cope with uh, falling short in his presidential ambitions, is uh, now having to cope with heartbreak. You know, he was uh, ostensibly dating Rosario Dawson, the actress, uh, during his campaign. He uh, said of uh, Dawson during their dating, 
Look, both of us, you know, we've had relationships, but I'm not sure if I've ever fully given myself over to a relationship as much as I have with her and allowed myself to be as vulnerable. Wow. Mm. Open yourself up like that. I mean, gosh, that night we talked for hours and hours. I had trouble asking for a phone number. I think I said something really stupid like, um, how would I get in touch with you? And she mercifully said something like, oh, you want my phone number? And my insights were like, hell yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then I, and then I called her on my Hello Kitty phone and we talked for hours and hours while I teased my hair. It was a magical relationship, power couple. Who wasn't rooting for Cory Booker and Rosario Dawson? I know T-Bone was. Well, our, uh, actress Rosario Dawson has now officially come out as a lesbian. That's about a month after she was dating Cory Booker during his presidential campaign. She, uh, she Rosario Dawson, telling uh, Bustle, People kept, say, kept saying that I came out. I didn't do that. I mean, it's not inaccurate, but I never did come out. I mean, I guess I am now. Oh, what a mess. Uh, she uh, is going back and forth about whether she's formally come out or not, d- defining what that means, because she said, I never had a relationship in that space, so it's never felt like an authentic calling to me. You know. Um, hmm. if you fall in love, you fall in love. But there's another aspect I had to consider what this meant in putting a microscope on my family and particularly on my daughter. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I hate to, you know, laugh at somebody else's pain, question mark. So, I mean, I, I'm, look, I hope uh, Corey finds another great gal that uh, will... Uh, Encourage him to be as vulnerable as he was with Rosario Dawson, you know, perhaps like uh, Kelly McGillis or or Meredith Baxter Bernie, somebody they can really build a future with. Thanks for joining us on the Dan Prof Show. Join us again tomorrow night. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Prof Show. You are fake news.